0: welcome to another edition of the beer Ivana podcast hi jeff
1: hey patrick you hi. know it it feels like i've just seen you very recently maybe like three <laughs> days ago it could be
0: <laughs> uh yeah so this is uh, a couple of days after our last podcast we're back at it uh this is podcast number 40 number 40 reached the big four zero.
1: 0 which which sounds impressive until you realize that we've been doing this for like three years or something so
0: yeah well that's Pretty impressive, (laughs) (laughs) I thought. Uh, Welcome to the Beervana podcast, of course. With me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Secrets of the Master Brewers, as well as old favorites like the Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple. You find him blogging at uh, Beervana, the Beervana blog, um, and tweeting at, at Beervana, and writing for All About Beer magazine.
1: And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Portland State University, you can find him blogging at Beeronomics and tweeting at at Beeronomics. And as I'm going to continue to hammer you, uh, you're going to go to Europe soon and you're going to go into pubs under, yes. my, exhort, or, under my exhortation and I want to see tweets. I want to see gorgeous uh, European pubs uh, so I can feel envious.
0: Pictures of, of beer glasses beaded with sweat. and Exactly. Okay. So we
1: can all feel we can feel the the, 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 the excitement, the, the the immediacy of your experience.
0: I'll do my best. As a as as the husband of a woman who doesn't particularly drink beer nor eat meat, it's uh it's gonna be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> but I'm up to it. <laughs> uh ah, yeah.
1: more bangers than mash at the past <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well yeah, the the uh the the, the German uh uh, pub experience the um the Hofbauhaus sort of idea was not wasn't a big big hit when I first mentioned it but you know it's all about the culture right so
1: that's right and they always have those wonderful uh pretzels so you can get pretzels there oh awesome with pots of uh she'll be very br- brown mustard she'll be very excited about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah your wife is a bit of a foodie in this may Exhaust her interest after one trip. Yeah, but pretzel. she's
0: also she's also into into exploration and culture, so she really wants to experience the Bavarian culture, then she should go and drink Pilsner and eat pretzels. That's right. She's gotta do it. Wear a dernal too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely take a photo of that. <laughs> I'll think I'll give you a selfie of me and later, Hosen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so today's pod is uh uh, a bit of a special pod. Um, back in March, as we've mentioned a couple times on the pod, Jeff released his latest book, The Secrets of the Master Brewers. In a couple of weeks, he'll be at the American Home Brewers Association annual conference in Minneapolis, uh, hawking it, uh, well, promoting it, um, bestowing the bestowing its its goodness upon the The world of home brewers Uh, and since it is about beer we thought it would make a good topic for today's podcast we actually did this for the beer bubble right so
1: yeah and I think we did it for cider made simple I think we did it
0: for cider made simple too so this is this is good stuff um uh, so we're gonna get to all that soon but uh, before we do uh, we'd like to remind you of course that the beer vana podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Guinness
1: yeah and unfortunately Guinness is not one of the breweries i use in this book um Guinness has always been incredibly secretive about its ingredients and processes. Uh, so, uh, for the Irish stout chapter, I turned to, um, Dublin's Porterhouse, House mm-hmm. uh, and the brewer there, Peter Mosley. Um, but there is an interesting way in which Guinness is kind of an important brewery, uh, in terms of, um, the approach I took to this book. So okay. that's good. It's a good example of, of the approach uh, I had, which is uh, on the one hand, um, One of the ways that that this book is organized is, the main way, is by national tradition. So I look at, um, instead of just a bunch of recipes about a bunch of different styles of beer, Mm -hmm. I break them out by country. So the national tradition of Germany, the national tradition of uh, England, the national tradition of Belgium, like that. Right. And a big part of that, if you look at those countries, one of the big things, what is so you ask the question, what is national, traditional? Well, a big part of that is the way people drink. So when you walk into an English pub, the way they're drinking beer is very different than when you walk into a Belgian cafe mm-hmm. or an American uh, brew pub. Right. Like we all drink differently. Right. And the kind of beer that people make uh, really relates very strongly to the way that they drink in the pubs. Mm-hmm. So Ireland and uh, Guinness's connection to Irish pub culture is like one of the clearest examples of the way that this communication between drinker and brewer goes back and forth. Right. Um, and the the other thing about it is, even though I did use Porterhouse uh, for this, the Irish Stout is so enormously dominated by this brewery Guinness right. that um, when you make an Irish Stout, even if you're making an Irish Stout in Ireland, you want to, you're you know you're a new craft brewer, you make A version of a beer that looks very much like Guinness right it's got um, the roasted barley it's got the same ABV it's got assertive bitterness that's what an Irish stout is because that's what Guinness is right so it's like totally dominated so Guinness is one of those those important like it's one of the most important breweries in the world in terms of carrying that continuity of style and national tradition
0: when Guinness started making this beer were there other local breweries in Ireland Ireland doing something similar
1: uh, yeah, there were Guinness. Guinness was the most successful of the stout breweries, mm-hmm. but it was not the only one. Um, I'm not even sure it was the first one. Right when they when they when Arthur Guinness started in the in 1760s, they were uh, making ale, which is a different entirely different kind of beer. Huh. Um, and they didn't start making uh, London Porter until after uh, maybe late in that century or after the the turn of the 19th century.
0: Right, so, but now, yeah, I'm more than More than uh, probably most national, uh, large brewers in most areas, Guinness really defines Irish stout (laughs) or Irish beer almost, (laughs) even though we know there's much more. But when people think of Ireland and beer, they think of Guinness generally.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh,
0: Cool. Uh, So um, we're going to turn to um, the main Uh, Topic, which is your newest book secrets of the master brewers of which uh, I now finally have a copy in my hand (laughs) From story publishing and it's out right available now available now. Okay Um, and um, uh, I'm going to serve as the uh, interviewer and you will be the interviewee my subject but I thought that it would be interesting because we don't get to talk too much about our uh, background a bit that people learn a little bit about you and how you got started uh, in this uh, profession, becoming a beer writer, because it was not um, anything you did by design, really. And so um, I thought I would ask you to begin just telling us uh, f- how you first got interested in beer.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and this is a tale you can weigh in on, because you were right there the whole time. I'll fact check you. My journey looks a lot like your journey in, in, in beer. Um, I came to Portland, Oregon in 1986 to go to Lewis and Clark College. Mm-hmm. And uh as with all college experiences, beer was a f- prominent feature. And pretty soon, um so an interesting thing is in the United, in, in Oregon we had um a brewery called Blitz Weinhardt that was in on downtown uh, Bur- on Burnside in downtown Portland. Right. And they had a product called Henry Weinhardt's Private Reserve, mm-hmm. which was sort of their specialty line. Right. And it's funny to say that in the mid to late 1980s I was introduced to craft beer through a macro brewer but that's really the case. I mean I remember the first when I got here the first thing that I understood to be good beer was Private Reserve and maybe uh Ale. Mm-hmm. Weinhardt's Ale. Uh they also made Weinhardt's Dark which I thought was, eh, was okay. But nice. uh, Private Reserve and and Henry Weinhardt's Blue Boar Ale. Those were those we regarded those as really yep. classic.
0: Remember them well.
1: Yeah. Very big beers in the dorms, we would drink those. And that kind of led me to... Well,
0: when we were trying to be classy. We yeah.
1: were trying to be classy, and we also... You could taste you could really taste the difference.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And it, and it, it, it had a, an important uh, <laughs> a role in my mind of demonstrating that good beer existed. Mm-hmm. And so then by the late 1980s, as I was getting older and nearing 21, um, I began to investigate other good beers and found craft beer, found, found imports um and was off to the races in terms of good beer
0: yeah and that was also the time where craft beer was just getting started in oregon in general so following the henry Weinhardt's private reserve um i remember early on uh, bottles of full sail uh and uh the mcminimins hillsdale pub yeah those are two other moments Uh, that i remember
1: the McMinnimans hillsdale pub is the first brew pub in oregon Mm -hmm. and it was the local for the university or for the college it was the closest thing to the college right so that's why we know that one very well.
0: Okay, and at so Lewis and Clark, your majors were?
1: Uh, I was a, a religious studies major and an English minor.
0: Right. So the English is there a little bit. Yeah. And then, and then after that...
1: So you, you and I went on a, a overseas trip. This is typical in, in at Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Many people go on overseas trips. Um, it's one of the big programs they have there. We went to India. Had I not gone on that, I would have been able to double major. But... Um, all the credits that we got in India were not applicable to, to English, so I had to, <laughs> that's I, true. Had to, I had to lose those, and so I couldn't do another. I couldn't uh, do a double major. Where
0: we learned about Mughal cistern beer, but that's another. Pair.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. From there, from there, you went off to grad school at Wisconsin, yes, I in did. South Asian studies, correct? As as memory serves. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs>
1: I got a degree in South Asian studies. I actually went there to do Buddhist studies PhD program, ah. and um, the program was sort of not in in good health and so i took a master's in south asian studies and was considering going on and then i didn't i decided that i didn't really want to be a scholar so okay kind of crapped out with my ma
0: uh and during that time you got started homebrewing.
1: yes another story that you know well
0: <laughs> So i've done my research <laughs> I've, got, I've got all my notes here that's right
1: yeah so this is a good story you should almost tell this story because this is this is the part you can tell just as well as i can
0: uh, I should tell the story. Okay, so w- I don't remember though why what what gave us the idea that we were going to brew.
1: Well, let's let's just add that uh, I'm in Wisconsin, and then I think maybe like six months after I came there. That's right. Yeah, you, I, I you, guess you, you should explain I've...
0: that 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 I I ended up in Wisconsin where I had uh, grown up, um, uh, at least part of my childhood in Madison, uh, and I came there for a master's in public policy program. Right. Uh, so I showed up. Uh, you were there, and we decided. Oh, and then we moved in together. I think that was pre. I think that's concurrent to this. Uh, and then we decided to brew for some reason. And there was a shop on State Street in downtown Madison called the Wine and Hop Shop. Yep. Where they sold home brewing supplies, <laughs> malt extracts. Uh, what else do they have? There? Pellet hops. Pellet hops. Yeah. Uh, we didn't know anything about anything. Um, but we went in there. It was uh, dried yeast. Dried yeast, yes. <laughs> but we got set up with a basic setup. I think we came home with some malt, some liquid malt extracts, some pellet hops, some dried yeast, yeah. and we were off to the races for our first pale ale. Was that our first?
1: Yeah, I think a pale was the first. I think they set you up the kit yeah. for a pale ale. So this
0: was what, 1993?
1: Yeah, three or four, something like that. Okay.
0: So 1993, we started home brewing, um, and it took a long time before we switched over to grain.
1: And it was really funny. When we went in there that first time, they... The, the part of the kit was Willamette Hops, which they, of course, pronounced Willamette. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we said, oh, we're from Oregon, and we know that that's pronounced Willamette. And they were incredibly impressed that we were from Oregon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. Already the, the reputation of Oregon craft beer had had spread far and wide.
1: Yeah, and we, we, we learned them how to say uh, Willamette.
0: Okay, so after graduating from Wisconsin, then what? Uh,
1: well, then I decided I didn't want to be a scholar, so I came back to Portland to drive mm-hmm. a cab. Uh, well, I came back to Portland and <laughs> found myself driving a cab, <laughs> okay, <yes. laughs> which, what it turns out, wasn't a really fun, a fun, uh, a fun year in my life. Um, but I, I always wanted to uh, pursue writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working on a a novel on my, on the side at the mm-hmm. time, and the local beer writer uh, William Abernathy left his post at the column run by the Alt Weekly, a Week, right. which was called The Mash. And they made an announcement that they were looking for a new writer. And I think I and, you know, 10,000 other beer geeks in Portland tried to get that job. Right. I got it because um, I was extremely lucky to know a friend of a, through a a friend, I found a connection uh, who had worked at the Star Brewery, Uh uh, which was a short-lived startup in the mid-90s in Portland. Right. Um, that had gone belly up and so I interviewed this guy and found out why they went belly up. And mm-hmm. Wrote wrote an article like I would for uh for the MASH. I right. turned it in and and that got me my first job.
0: So there was no uh um plan to be- become I mean the, the the plan to become a writer was certainly in your mind, but to become a beer writer was completely accidental.
1: Completely accidental, yeah. yeah. And the truth is, I thought I knew a lot about beer at the time, really, I really didn't know very much about so beer. So I
0: remember the MASH column. Uh, I used to follow it from afar, because the internets had been invented by then, and I could, <laughs> <laughs> and I could look up your columns. Uh, I was off in the East Coast at this point pursuing my PhD. Yep. Uh, so you were writing the, mat, the MASH for a while, um, but it was kind of just a, a side job still, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was once every other week, and the lemon week basically doesn't pay anything.
0: Right. So, at what point did you decide to try and make a, a go of this beer writing thing?
1: Well, I continued to write about beer uh, after I left the Mash. I continued to write about beer for other organizations, other uh, newspapers and magazines. Over, you know, kind of did freelance, not very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, started writing about politics more seriously in the mid in the in the aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, founded a couple of blogs, uh, including Blue Oregon oregonians portlanders and oregonians may recognize that one mm-hmm. um and because of the toxicity of, of politics <laughs> uh, i started to la- pine for my days of writing about beer right and that's when i founded the beer vana blog um as just kind of an outlet so i could write about this really
0: far fewer trolls in beer yeah <laughs> this
1: is like thing that everybody loves and yeah. everybody is interested in and nobody's going to be critical of um so that started in 2006 uh-huh. uh, i was Working as a, by this time I'd been working for a long time as a researcher at Portland State University in the Graduate School of Social Work, right. doing research about child the child welfare system in, in uh, Oregon. Uh, and in twenty ten the economy as the economy was at its really terrible uh, bottoming out point. Right. Um, the there were great unemployment benefits. So uh, when my federal grant ran out, which mm-hmm. it did every few years, and we always had to scramble get on a new program a new new grant find new research um i decided to try to pitch in a book and um get, get you know get that going and see if i could write full time
0: okay and and yeah that book was
1: what well that book was a book that never got published okay um it was it was not a very interesting book actually <laughs> but it, but it succeeded in getting me a uh, an agent uh-huh. and that agent pitched the book to uh, workman publishing right. who had an idea t- for this this follow-up to the wine bible that they were considering and when they saw mine they said oh that's a a terrible book we don't want anything to do with that but we are looking for a writer would jeff and they asked neil would jeff be interested in writing the beer bible and 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 you said yes yeah it's like oh my god but it wasn't a
0: done deal right you had you had to submit a proposal
1: yeah it was not a done deal at all took a year Mm -hmm. and there were uh they were considering several other writers some of whom i met and um uh, or have heard about since then.
0: And you were put in a cage and asked to settle it among amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would have
1: been more satisfying to all of us. It was much. It was much more like uh, they would ask for something, give you no information about where we are or in the process, whether you're right. like a super long shot right. or the front runner. Just,
0: just leading you on, leading yeah. you on, leading you on.
1: Yeah, month after month after month.
0: But in the end, it was you. Yeah, uh,
1: and then... I I got lucky, and I tell you, I know some of those other writers, and I would have, I probably wouldn't have hired myself. So, <laughs> for writers out there, there everything is capricious, and there are many times when you write something that's brilliant, and somebody should pick it up, and you feel like there's no there's no explanation, but then sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it goes the other way. It goes in your favor. So stick with it. Yeah,
0: that's a little bit like academic publishing.
1: It is. It's really hard to predict. Yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, okay, so that finally leads us. So you 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 completed the beer bible. That took you what all good good part of two years.
1: Yeah, it was a two year contract. Yeah.
0: Um, you traveled around the world. Uh, you completed the beer bible, and then you did the uh, cider made simple book, right? Um, which also led you um, to cider making regions of the world. Yep. Um, and then after that,
1: yeah. After that, this book actually is really a follow-up to the Beer Bible, the uh, Secrets of the Master Brewers. Right. right. I should, since we're on a podcast, yes. and we both looked at the book, that's and no one, one else could, one. could see us looking at that book, I'll yeah. say. Yeah. So actually,
0: let me give you let me give you the full title because Secrets of the Master Brewers, and then I don't know the subtitle or I think it's on the cover: Techniques, Traditions, and Homebrew Recipes for Twenty Six of the World's Classic Beer Styles.
1: Yep, that's the book.
0: Awesome. So is this a uh, is this a book um, solely for homebrewers?
1: It's a homebrew book, but um the truth is I think that if you're an in, if you're at all interested in the kind of process of brewing mm-hmm. uh if you're one of these beer geeks who when when we say late edition hops mm-hmm. and um if you know what the word pitching means mm-hmm. um if you know what a decoction mash is mm-hmm. if you've heard of that and kind of know what it is um I think this book would be interesting to you uh it has the the structure is designed to kind of walk there's a lot of material outside of the the specifics about brewing it sure and, um the 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 title here says 26 of the world's classic beer styles actually it's more like archetypes so i i tried to look at tw- all the beers that was out there right. and find classic uh an example of a classic uh tradition that would um elucidate something very key about about a beer how a beer was made. Right. But I didn't need to do it for all beers in a certain category. So, for like, sure. it's like Bavarian lagers, you don't need to actually write a chapter on Hellas and uh, Bavarian Pilsner uh-huh. and Bach beer and Meritsen, Like, the way that they make, the way that they approach a Bavarian brewery would approach all of these beers is identical. And beyond the very particular way Bavarians make lagers, um, they just change the recipes for those different types of beer. So I didn't need to write, you know, 10 different uh, Bavarian lager chapters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, as you were saying that I was thinking of the parallel, like if, if I was interested in, in uh, different food styles across the world, I don't need to be a professional chef to, to, uh, to appreciate the differences and the different approaches to food and even interested in different recipes to sort of see how things are. But that's certainly true of being a beer connoisseur. I don't think you have to be a home brewer to really um, appreciate uh, what's inside the beer and understand what's in the beer and how and how the differences in the way they chose ingredients and made the beer is, uh, uh, relates to the flavor you're tasting.
1: Yeah, and there are, at this point, there are a lot of people out there who are deeply interested in beer and don't actually want to bother with the making of it, mm-hmm. but understand it on a fairly granular level. Right. And I think would understand this book. I think there's a lot of stuff in this book they would really groove to and maybe even glancing through the, uh, the, the, uh, the recipes just to kind of see how they compare and differ you know region to region and country to country and and um so i think yeah i i think i definitely think and hope that people who are not planning to use it as a guide still pick it up or at least glance at it and see if it's something they'd be interested in
0: yeah so it's a it's a good 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 part of the toolkit for beer enthusiasts but uh, now switching sides if you are a home brewer you will find some detailed recipes about how to brew these classic traditions let's put it that way
1: yeah so let me back up and mm-hmm. and say why <laughs> why this book why do why does a homebrewer need yet another book about yeah, homebrew home because there's a lot of good homebrew books out there mm-hmm. um and i'm 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 really aware of that and I, I i uh I wanted to offer something that I didn't think existed right this beer this book um and the, the reason I think that this is valuable and and is something that doesn't exist uh, is because of a discovery I had when I would come back from going to one of uh, one of my trips on the uh, beer bible research, mm-hmm. and I would talk to other people here, homebrewers. I I, I spoke a couple of times to homebrew clubs, um, but also just regular folk who are homebrewers. And uh, and I discovered that when I would come back from, let's say, uh, Belgium, I you know I'd be talking to them about Belgian ale, and I and I would mention that it's really important in the Belgian context to do bottle conditioning, like the secondary fermentation in the bottle is everybody does that. So if you're not doing bottle fermentation, re-fermentation in the bottle, um, you're going to get a particular, you're not going to get the same flavor profile that, that a Belgian gets. Right. And they would always be like, really, is that true? Um, and I would, you know, say, oh yeah. And if you're making a, a Czech pilsner, always good to do first word hopping. I never encountered anybody in Czech Republic who didn't first word hop. Oh, really? <laughs> That's really so interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, there's all these quirks. And then that's just kind of a thing that I've discovered is that country to country to country, people think very differently about beer. So that's how I wanted to organize the book right. is to show people uh, that the drinking culture, which we've already talked about, the way the ingredients. Yes, last week we talked about malts. So mm-hmm. we talked about the difference in the way that the English and the Americans think about malts. Right. So that's when you're talking about ingredients. There are really big differences uh nationally you know, national tradition and national tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's difference in the history that a country has, like the history of the evolution of beer is very different in uh, the UK than it is in in Germany. Um, laws really affect that. So that's of course sort of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the way brewers make beer country to country, mm-hmm. they just make it differently. They do different processes and um, there's a lot of really interesting quirks in the way you would make um, you can you can make in in America it's pretty t- typical and early homebrew books talked about how basically you achieve flavor through different recipes. Right. So the process was fairly similar, but you know you use different different hops and different, right. different malts. Yeah. Instead of looking at the processes and what that contributes, um, and that process really emerges out mm-hmm. of the way brewers think about beer. So they have really different philosophies in, mm-hmm. in like. Two classic examples are Belgium and Germans. They mm-hmm. think about beers so radically differently mm-hmm. that if you try to approach the beers using a different kind of philosophy than than uh, they have, you're going to end up with beers that don't taste quite the same. Right. right. So, I wanted to put out that as an as an idea. So the book is organized by those different national traditions, and we talk about the characteristics. We talk about the philosophy at the start of the uh, the the section on that, that mm-hmm. group um and then we go into these archetypes and break down how those those beers are made what they are what their tradition is and right and how so brew them.
0: so let me so let me ask you so so you identified a bunch of different national traditions and then where did you go from there so you i don't know you, you, you give me an example of, of a tradition that you identified and then how you decided to sort of follow that down the the rabbit hole as it were
1: yeah um Let's take Germany, since okay. they have the most established category of you know their beers are really, really, really well defined. When okay. you talk about when you talk about beer style in Germany, it's very precise. Right. Uh, so I'm looking at Germany and I'm thinking how many how, And at first, when I pitched the book, I thought I'm going to be doing you know a Schwarz beer chapter and a, and a Merzen chapter and all these things. And then <laughs> I started talking to uh, Florian Kuplant, who was my my informant. The guy I worked with on this because I wanted to be—I started it with Hellas because right. Bavarian lagers are the most important. They're the when you talk about lagers in in Germany, you want to talk about Bavarian lagers because mm-hmm. that's where it came from. It's the ancient tradition. So I talked to Florian Kuplent, who's a Bavarian trained uh, uh, brewer who worked in started his career in Bavaria before coming to the United States mm-hmm. and starting um, uh, Urban Chestnut in St. Louis. Uh-huh. And then I realized w- as we were talking that all those other beers just don't you don't they don't really need these these things. Right. Um, but then there are these other beers like and then a similar case can be made, and I think this is true for though uh, <laughs> kind of controversially, for Kolsch and Alt beer. Right. These two are so so distinct in the way they're consumed and 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 pursued. But actually the way they're made, when I visited those two places I realized they're made very very similarly and thought about very similarly. Uh-huh. So i included those together. Right. But then there are these other radical beer styles like Berliner Weisse and Goza mm. um, that require uh, their own kind of explication. Like we got to go into this: How the hell did we come up with Berliner Weisse? That's right. so different from a Helles. Right. So how does that happen? So I just tried to capture: Like if you go to Germany, you're going to find these all these different kind of styles. Okay. Um, how would you brew? If you wanted to brew any beer style in Germany, uh, you know, I want to. I wanted to have somebody tell you how to do. German brewing so that you could replicate any beer style in, in Germany okay. in the German manner.
0: Okay, and so one of these styles, for example, you pick, and then you go and contact uh, a well-known master brewer at a German brewery or local uh, in the U.S. Or, or both?
1: I always tried to choose uh, the, a brewer as close to the uh, Ur source as I could. Right. And sometimes that meant working with Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of sure. cases where uh for example berliner Weisse is a good example mm-hmm. they're basically it's a defunct style and there's not really an authority left in germany right but here in oregon and we've talked about this before we have this guy alan taylor mm-hmm. uh, who was trained in in berlin and did a bunch of deep study about the berliner Weisse style while he was there right um including technical analyses of old old bottles and he Studied deeply about the tradition of brewing that. So yeah. when he came back and starts brewing it, started brewing it here in Oregon. He's mm-hmm. making some of the most traditional brewing devices in the world. Right. So I was like, got to go to Alan. This okay. guy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he knows everything. But on Goza, there's two traditional breweries uh, in Germany that's that make classic Gozas, and mm-hmm. one of them is. Uh, uh, Bonhof, a brewery called Bonhof, and I. So I contacted uh, Matthias Richter, who is the master brewer there, who uh-huh. makes it there. So we talk. So he, he he walks you through it.
0: So you talk to him about all this stuff about the ingredients, about the process he uses, about his philosophy towards beer.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting with Goza because um, you're using this kind of souring process uh, through lactobacillus. Mm-hmm. So the way that you sour your wort and the way that gozes have been made has has varied a lot so talking to him about how he does that and what a a good approach would be Mm -hmm. all that is is, uh is fairly interesting
0: and then the recipes that follow are recipes that are given to you by the people you're you're interviewing
1: exactly yeah and sometimes it was interesting i always said to them when i contacted them and some of these people i i actually The, the the large majority actually i knew uh, for my my travels, mm-hmm. um, but there were a couple that I didn't know. Um, Matthias Tr- Richter was one. I couldn't make it to Leipzig, so it was, right. it was outside my range. But um, uh, so I, I always said, you don't have to give me your like the crown right. jewel. Right, <laughs> I'm asking you to stand in for this this uh, this tradition. So you, you know, you and everybody in your in your region makes this kind of beer mm-hmm. so what's a kind of classic typi- typical just, yeah, recipe yeah, yeah give yeah. me a, like a basic because then in the chapter we have next steps which is how would you change this up what are variations that are typical oh interesting yeah what what, what will you like change it if you wanted to do what that? are the
0: areas of sort of modification playing around exactly what kind of things you do oh that's that's very interesting and then did when they gave you the recipes were they sort of cognizant of of the limitations of a homebrew, or are they just it's like, this is the way it should be done, triple decoction, you know?
1: <laughs> I, I asked them to be as hardcore as possible, okay. and I took it as my responsibility to decide whether it was possible to make that kind of beer. So okay. there, we have, there's a chapter on wild ales, mm-hmm. uh, and I do, not got, I do not talk to um, Belgians. The styles come from the Belgian uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. For those, because the... It would be a Lambic brewer and a brewer like Rodenbach that I would have gone to. In neither case would those uh, commercial breweries have had any idea how to translate that back to a five gallon batch. They're they're barrel aged beers and fooders. And so much of those beers that happen, so much of the stuff that happens, happens in these giant fooders. And everything they know about is what happens in giant fooders. So they would not have been able to translate it very well. So I didn't actually use them for those. Um, but in other cases, a great example is Hans Peter Drexler at the Schneider Brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave me, a, a he gave me his recipe. He basically that, the, the, the vice beer that's in there, it's a, a classic Bavarian, um, Hefeweizen, mm-hmm. uh, that is Schneider. So if you want to make that beer exactly that way, you're going to make Schneider. Wow. Um, And it has has six or seven mash rests. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And I put that in there because I just thought it was... I I think it's... Homebrewers are incredibly clever. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I looking at that would say, well, that's crap. There's no way. We would look at it and eyeball it and say, well, we can drop this rest. We can drop this rest. We can drop this rest. Get down to maybe like three. Um, I think homebrewers will instantly understand that there are different... You know different gains and losses for doing this. Maybe they. I, I hope. I really hope that some brewers try the six steps that Schneider goes through, just because it's fantastic. But
0: That's it's just so quintessentially German that you know it just makes sense that Germans known for being organized and precise exactly. would make a beer with such consistency that it has six or seven rests. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was.
1: I thought it was not my job to. Yeah, to, to limit um, the home brewer though. Like, sure, you should have the straight poop. Like, oh if yeah, you, if you could walk in and get Schneider's uh, direct recipe, would you prefer that, or would you prefer a version that has been dumbed down so that you can, you know, for the home brewer? Absolutely, I, the form. Yeah, yeah, let the home brewer decide.
0: Yeah, all right. So uh, I'm going to ask you some very um, uh, interviewer y questions. Uh, which is the first one I want to ask you is, what did did you learn? Um, I'm trying to decide how to phrase this. Were there any? Was there anything surprising that you learned in the researching and writing of this book that you didn't know about, like techniques that were new to you, or any surprises, or failing that? What was the most interesting thing that came out?
1: Oh uh, yeah, the pro. I mean, yeah, the whole process was one of. I, I learned a ton. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's a little bit hard to disaggregate the learning for this book versus the beer bible because um, yeah. it kind of was you know when you're talking about like hans peter drexler right. w- when i visited him for the beer bible um it was just like a, a mind explosion mm-hmm. <laughs> to learn all that stuff um and so the the additional information that i picked up from from him uh w- when i went back for this chapter was much smaller although it did exist so uh there were there were smaller discoveries in some of those cases um and but um, yeah, so it's a little bit hard to know uh, which Wait, was which.
0: When well, yeah, when you learned what what yeah. uh, I,
1: I think maybe one of the biggest is um, the American. I, there's a chapter in here. I treat America like its own tradition. Right. And I met with Ben Edmonds, who's a brewer we've talked about a lot here, mm-hmm. and he talked about the way they think about hops in modern American brewing. And um, so, so this book, I wrote that chapter. And I talked to Ben before the Beer Bible had come out, and before I went on my my book tour, Mm -hmm. it was very timely because when I traveled around the country, I started I got to see a lot of brewers in other parts of the country, and I talked to them and asked them their process of coming to learn how to make an American IPA, and they described a process very very similar to the way Ben describes his process. Right. Um, I think that the I think that the beer I think the chapter on hoppy American ales. It's not really IPAs. I think I call it Hoppy American Ales because right. it covers everything we call sure. IPAs. Yeah, I think that the information that's in there is probably uh, has not been put in a book before. I think it's it, it captures the way Americans think about and brew beer in a way that that looks it looked to me at, at, as radical as uh, Berliner Weisse, um, uh, Lambic brewing. I mean it. We, the way Americans have started to brew beer is super bizarre. And having Ben just walk me through it and walk me the way through what he thinks about it and how mm-hmm. Americans now brew and think about beer, it's, it, it, by any standard, compared to other brewing traditions or compared to um, uh, past brewing practices, it is bizarre and radical. <laughs> and that, yeah. and I think discovering that we had this thing that was bizarre and radical as i always think you know. Oh, you got to go to a place, a weird little obscure place in Leipzig to find this weird beer that's being made or, you know, somewhere near Brussels to find weird beer. But to find that it's this huge tradition that's dominating America that is just as weird was, was uh, just kind of blew my mind. Yeah.
0: And for a home brewer, um, and we've talked about how we actually, you and I tried his recipe, um, for a home brewer, it's, it's entirely different than the way that you and I learned how to home brew and, how utilization of ingredients and everything so yeah it, it was uh um something entirely new to me and it was uh quite a revelation for me because i had been trying to achieve that sort of hop saturated flavor in my beers and being so frustrated at my inability to do so um that uh it was really um, wonderful to sort of finally figure out how how, how they did it, <laughs> and,
1: and when we 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 when we brewed that beer and we were calling it a Ben Men, Ben Edmonds IPA, mm-hmm. it was we we in our classic uh, uh, maneuver. Uh, brewed we were shooting for a low a lowish alcohol IPA like a 6% I think mm-hmm. and ended up with a Session IPA right and it was yet nevertheless still superb one of the finest beers we brewed yeah so it was like amazing even though we screwed up the gravity
0: our typical stuff um, what about other recipes have you tried uh, uh, I know that we've tried other recipes as well but what h- how many of these recipes have you tried personally uh
1: the recipes themselves. So I've tried techniques. Right. Okay. Uh, it's more about techniques than recipes yeah. here, um, because they really define the the recipes. And this is one thing that you've talked about that we've talked that w- that I've <laughs> mentioned to you that we've tried tech- more techniques than you realize. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be brewing what is kind of a standard beer, and I'll be like, uh, like I tried open fermentation on one of our beers. I, don't, I can't remember which one it was. Right. Just to see what that was like, um, which was interesting. You know, I put I I put it back in. The, I put the beer back in the kettle. We have a nice Ten gallon kettle and I put it back in there and mm-hmm. um, found a room in our uh, house that is fairly undisturbed, so that and we don't have animals, so it's like stuff's not fall, falling in there. <laughs> dogs are not licking it, um, and let it go through primary fermentation here in the house to see what would happen. And I got to tell you, I would know, there's no chance I would have risked that on a on a batch of beer if it hadn't been, you know, diagnostic to see if that would work. Yeah, um, it totally worked, and it actually substantially changed the character of the beer yeah, yeah so
0: and we've done other things we've done decoction we've done uh kettle souring there's a bunch of things that that we've tried yeah but, exactly there's actually been a lot of fun and and that's the kind of stuff that that just as you were talking about like traditional homebrew books or at least the early on would simply talk about different ingredients but the the process was pretty much the same and the idea i think it was to keep it simple so people would find it approachable yeah but after a while uh, you realize that technique is such an important part and there's all these different ways in which you can get different flavors out of beer. So,
1: I have in my hand a Duval, and I'm going to crack it and talk about that a little bit. Let's. Uh, the and the, as I'm going to do this because you and I brewed a triple way mm-hmm. back when, yep. which was based on this Duval recipe. I didn't want to make a Duval exactly like a Duval. Um, and in the chapter, I talk about the difference Ouch. <laughs> uh, between... Um, uh, the Duvel and uh, a triple, for example, which uh-huh. is which is, but there there there's a really different way in which these very similar beers are made. Uh, and I, I I didn't want a Duvel, so we we t- we tweak that a little bit. It's one mm-hmm. of those things. Like <laughs> I'm a home brewer, so I'm always tweaking everything. Um, but Duvel is a good example of the kind of uh, uh, beer that I talk about. I think that seems basic, and then when you start talking about how it's made. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry.
0: You're losing the audio. There we go. Yeah, nice, close. So just, wait, just, to, just to stop and make sure, uh, so this is one of the featured uh, styles in the book. It is. And, Duval, th- and this is the recipe that exists.
1: Yeah, and this, the, the recipe in the book is fairly close to Duval. So if okay. you follow it, um, you're going to be get something quite close to Duval. Okay. We, it's good that I poured that out because Duval is so massively effervescent that we yeah. have to wait that t- let that settle down a little bit yeah, take a good sniff now though mm. the reason duel is a great example mm. is because it's a really challenging beer to make mm-hmm. and once you start talking so hedvig hedvig Newven uh, is the master brewer for, mm-hmm. that oversees all of uh the mortgat brands which okay. now include things like boulevard and, right. and um uh firestone walker and others he's kind of the 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 big the big cheese and he's a, he is a big cheese he's one of the most famous and well-regarded brewers in the world uh-huh. and i think he deserves it because uh over the course of decades he has he's been brewing uh since the 90s at duval he's been the master brewer since i think just after the new millennium um and this beer is has continued he'd continued to refine it um and it's so challenging and it's so Belgian because Belgian because uh, it has all these interesting characteristics that would be hard to pull off if you didn't know how to brew it like a Belgian. So it's extremely attenuated. It's mm-hmm. it's 1.5 Play-Doh, 10.06 uh, Final Gravity, which is very, very, very low for a for a beer that's as strong as 10.70. It starts out at 10.70 or 17.5 Play-Doh. Right. Um, it's got a very lean body. It's quite robust. It's got quite a few hops in it. The mm-hmm. character of the hops are very... Uh, prominent it's got this massive effervescence and it all comes together in this way that has this belgian quality and all this character all this balance um that comes together when you make beers this way and it's really hard to if if you just tasted this beer and tried to replicate it without understanding how the belgians make it right it would be really hard to pull off um and so i talk in the in the chapter about uh the way the the reason you do step mashes and the reason you do the steps at the steps you use right Uh, talk about um, things like uh, and then you have to have sugar to to boost the uh, the alcohol and also help with attenuation Mm -hmm. talk about um, the fermentation (laughs) when you smell it it just smells so Belgian yeah sure does Mm. I have to taste it before I go too far yeah Mm. oh yeah I mean, it's just one of the most spectacular beers in the world. Um, So we talk about fermentation and where the fermentation needs to be. Um, And then I talk about a thing that Belgians do that you might not know about, but it's really important to know about, which is under-pitching, pitching pitching fewer cells, uh, yeast cells than you would normally do. This is something that uh, Duval does. Duval pitches 7.5 million uh, cells per whatever, Liter, mm-hmm. like i always forget point what for <laughs> what but it's <laughs> in the book okay.
0: it's fewer than you normally would
1: it's less than half than you normally would mm-hmm. and the reason you do this is because when yeast is uh under it really stresses the yeast out right and stressed yeast does stuff like kick off esters and and mm-hmm. uh phenols and stuff right so
0: so it really it really mm-hmm. uh juices the the ester production and
1: exactly so this flavor that we're getting
0: yeah this banana clovey
1: yeah Mm -hmm. and there's there's a low rest which just is enough Mm -hmm. to barely activate the the ferulic acids Mm -hmm. which help get that spiciness you're getting some of the spice from from hops but you're getting some of the spice from yeast and you're getting all these characters when you read how he does it it, when you taste it it almost seems a little bit like a magic trick because it's very hard to see how you could get all these flavors in harmony um, and then you read it and you start saying, "Oh, I see they do it this way. Oh, yeah. that's an interesting little trick."
0: By the way, a question that I've always um, been meaning to ask but never have: Do the Belgians in general approach this as a, a very scientifically, or is it an artisanal approach? And by the by the two, I mean that is there a lot of sort of science about how the uh, compounds are being changed and created and Um, sort of laboratory based or is it just all of this years of experience and trial and error
1: that's a that's a really amazing question that's a (laughs) it's an amazing question for two reasons one i know i'm pretty amazing (laughs) that's true yeah it's a perfect it's a great question uh but it's also there's almost no better beer than than duvel to 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 use as an example so it's perfectly timely um the answer is it's both um traditional breweries uh so duvel has been um, been made since the like the twenties I think, but it was mm-hmm. a dark beer this is a fascinating thing right so when light beers became popular, they switched it over they just changed it from a dark beer to a light beer <laughs> and I think that was like in the late sixties uh-huh. uh, and it was still very it was still very all very traditional uh, Hedwig, when he came on um, he started applying he 's a very rigorous scientist and mm-hmm. he started applying rigorous science to adjust things and right. it didn 't really change the basic you know the traditional methods of production. Right. But it did do things like they would look at uh yeast cells being pitched and decide where they want those yeast cells being pitched. Mm-hmm. Um they did a lot of research and he he's there's a pull out quote in the in the thing but a lot of research on how to hop it and where to hop it and when to hop it and what to hop it with uh-huh. and that took a lot of tinkering and it kind of had a at a chemical level to figure out right exactly how to get those qualities going. And he said, "That's one thing I'm not going to get into too much detail. I'll give you general guidelines, and you can <laughs> you can figure it out yourself. You can figure out your house yourself." Yeah. Uh,
0: that's really cool. So, um, yeah, because I imagine that you know the beer starts very traditionally, but then especially when you're talking about a big mass production brewery, you need to be able to be consistent, and then it becomes harder and harder just to rely on the old ways, and more important to really pin down what what's happening when and why. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And I just have to say this beer, um, I think drinking beers is really important too. So if this inspires you to go out and buy a Schneider or a Duval or a, uh, a London pride. Uh, I, we, I, I talked to John Keeling, our old friend in the, in the book that was a lot of fun. So he's one of the guys. Yeah. So,
0: the, the former head brewer at Fuller's, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's good to taste these beers and Really examine them on a sensory level as you're looking at the technical stuff, so that you can see when we talk about um, attenuation, what that feels like, what that what that does to the palate, how that uh, what effect that has on the overall um, uh, kind of a integration of yeah. the different the different flavors and stuff.
0: It is pretty amazing to go around and I realize people don't necessarily have this kind of time or access but it's pretty amazing to go around and talk to these brewers and then taste their own beer with them mm-hmm. and have them describe it to you and what they're tasting and what they're looking for in their beer and how they brew their beer to achieve those things um so this book is kind of a way to kind of have that conversation without actually traveling to london and, <laughs> and going to the going to the uh the chiswick brewery so
1: yeah that's exactly right that, that's that should be on the book pepper that's what the goal was
0: yeah if you pay me enough you're really you're
1: you're really doing uh, a very fine job here
0: um it, it is also true that that's one of the nice things about uh craft beer in the united states is that um it's so much of it is local and a lot of being a craft brewer is also being kind of a spokesman for your beer and so there are a lot usually lots of opportunities to meet and greet brewers um local craft brewers and you can have that same experience locally too yeah uh, and when when you've read this book, you'll have all kinds of background information, great, great questions to ask. And
1: so. Yes, and I have to tell you, uh, we we asked uh, different brewers to put put plugs on the back, mm-hmm. and Ben Edmonds uh, sent me a, a list of them that just made me so I couldn't. It was like the greatest thing I'd ever read. We couldn't use all of them, so I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote one of the one of the ones he didn't use here because it's just so cool. Yeah, and. Uh, um, I, I I hope other people relate to this the way Ben did, but it was very pleasing to see this. He wrote, this book transcends the how to brew, how to homebrew genre, and it is easily one of the handful of truly essential books on modern brewing, period. It's a detailed gift to the entire brewing community. Amateurs and professionals should rejoice at this treasure trove insight into how great beers are actually made.
0: Yeah, So well, I think one of the fun things about being a craft beer enthusiast is, there's so much variety out there and it's kind of fun to to be able to identify flavors and think about how they're made. And, you know, it's one of the things we do when we go out and taste beers, we talk about whether these flavors, do you think this is coming from the yeast or is this hops and, you know, do they add juice to this or is this all hop? Uh, so there's lots of ways in which you can approach beer. And then the more you know about how it's made, the more engaging, you Uh, that conversation is the more you can get engaged with the beer so
1: yeah so and and if you are a home brewer it's also cool to look at things like okay the Czechs use this first word hopping Mm -hmm. Um, it's an interesting technique I think I'm kind of getting to see a little of the character why am I not using this on my my IPAs Um, you know and that's that's the Germans going the other way um, have seen the success the americans are having with dry hopping so now germans are starting to do more and more dry hopping so there if you learn these techniques and understand how they affect the beer specifically then you can pull them into other styles and it gives you a, a kind of bigger like an expanded toolkit for improvisation at your own if you're a home brewer on your own awesome all
0: right cool well so this is a book that's out now it's from uh, story publishing you can buy it anywhere and everywhere
1: yes i don't know you can buy it online for sure that's the easiest way amazon definitely sells it
0: so and you are off to uh this
1: although a hector your local homebrew store to carry it so if you ask them and they don't if they carry books that's I right had, i had to hector uh fh steinbart here in portland to, to carry it and they're going to do that now so
0: that that as well they should um well congratulations this this is a fantastic book and i look forward to reading it now that you finally gave me a copy
1: yeah and we and you and i will continue to mine this for uh ideas i mean the truth is you you know just as well as i do what what mediocre brewers we are yeah um (laughs) and uh so i'm not passing myself off as the expert i'm kind of the midwife between the experts and the homebrewer
0: yeah which is also a good point, which is that you don't have to be an expert or even a particularly talented homebrewer to to try these recipes and try out these different techniques because we suck and we <laughs> we still have fun. <laughs> yeah. We actually had some pretty good success as we were talking about with the Ben Edmonds one, so yeah uh great, and you're off to uh where was it again Minneapolis Minneapolis for the homebrewers convention there, and when is
1: that uh may like I'll be there May 16th to 18th, and I think it actually starts on the 15th. Uh,
0: That's cool because that was two weeks ago.
1: Sorry, June. June, thank you. (laughs) 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 The the duvel's already gone to your head.
0: Uh, Okay, excellent. Um, So go find Jeff and have him sign a copy for you. All right. Uh, well, then I guess it's time to say uh, goodbye. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Um, of course, you should always be in touch with us. Um, you can get in touch with us through the Beervana blog, which is um, uh, Jeff's uh, revamp blog is now at beervanablog.com. Uh, and he also tweets at Beervana, and there's the Beervana blog Facebook page, which is a really good way to get in touch. Um, and uh, your new email address is jeff at beervanablog.com. Um, so do send us your comments and questions.
1: That's right. And Patrick uh, is tweeting and blogging at Baronomics. And um, ping him when he's in Europe to make sure that he's doing <laughs> this, this uh, tweeting thing.
0: All right. All right. You've, the challenge has been has been made and accepted. All uh, right. Well, I, I shall <laughs> I shall tweet uh cold glasses of beer porn or whatever excellent so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right uh well cheers jeff i have the bottle you can have the glass all right because i have the can both time. of them yeah both of them have beer in them, so that's good all, all right. right cheers cheers